0: Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. Few things divide a family quicker than money. Anytime there is an inheritance to be had and split among one or more siblings or two or more siblings, uh, greed rears its ugly head. It doesn't seem to matter if the state's worth five million or five hundred dollars. It's somebody shows up with their hand out and expecting something. According to Forbes magazine, when siblings argue over money, 68% of the time it is over their parents' money. Specifically, how it will be divided up when their parents die. The article went on to say that millennials and Gen Xers are the most likely to fight over the division of their parents' assets. It's not just a source of problem for the millennials and the Gen Xers. It's really been a source of problem for every generation since there's been an inheritance to be made. There was such an argument taking place in Luke chapter 12. I guess this guy would be involved in the general Ayers or the first millennials. It's the second half of an already full day for Jesus. He started out that morning by casting a demon out of a demon-possessed man who was mute, and when he cast that demon out, the man was able to speak. Many people praised God for what had happened. Others, like the scribes and the Pharisees, were saying he can only cast out demons because he's powered by Satan. Jesus responded to their blasphemous accusations and revealed the foolishness of their claims, the hypocrisy of their claims. It would make no sense for Satan to fight against Satan. And besides, if their sons or their others in that generation were casting out demons, how were they doing it? Why would it be any different for Jesus? Jesus then chastised the crowd, most of whom were there, just to see the tricks. They were not really interested so much in what Jesus was saying as they were in what Jesus might do, what he might perform, what uh, miracles he might display so they could ooh and ah as if they were going to a David Copperfield show and looking at the tricks and say, do another one. He made it clear that even the Gentiles, like those in Nineveh, had far less signs than that current generation had yet they repented in sackcloth and ashes and they they believed these gentiles believed how much more should that generation of jews who had the entire truth of the old testament canon and were watching and listening to jesus live how much more should they believe left them without excuse After that morning, Jesus was invited to lunch, a nice relaxing lunch at a Pharisee's house. And the first thing that happened is Jesus bypassed the the bowl that was used to purify hands. And the Pharisee began to think in his heart, why does this man not purify his hands? He just goes right to the table, he's going to pollute everything. Jesus would turn the tables again on the Pharisees and and speak about the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, saying, you clean up the outside of the cup, but inside you're just full of wickedness and robbery. You look really nice outwardly, but inside you're dead, you're wicked, you're deadly. He exposed their pride and their hypocrisy, the fact that they would tithe every herb in their garden, they would go off and pick a a tenth of the leaves off the herbs and pick a tenth of the seeds out of their garden and they would give those as a tithe, but they neglected more important things like mercy on other people and loving God. Chastise them for their desire to be noticed and respected by the average person. They would broaden the phylacteries, these pouches on their forehead or their arm that was used to contain Scripture so they would stand out and People would see them in ooh and ah and one wish they could be as spiritual as those Pharisees were. And he told them they're they're nothing more than concealed tombs. They're unclean, they're polluted, and they pollute everybody who comes near them because the people don't even know they're coming near a dead body. Scribes, lawyers that were at the lunch were a little insulted. So Jesus made sure they were thoroughly insulted. And he exposed the fact that they impose laws on other people that they themselves have no intention on fulfilling. It was much like, uh, you know, when I was growing up and my dad would, would uh, say, tell me to do something and, and I would say, but you don't do that. And he, and he would always respond, do as I say, not as I do. That's what the scribes are doing. Do as I say, not as I do. Don't follow my example, follow my words. He pointed out their hypocrisy and claiming to be more righteous than their ancestors who killed the prophets. But they themselves say, we honored the prophets. We built fancy tombs for them to show our respect for the prophets. If we had lived in the Old Testament era, we would have listened to the prophets. Yet one that's greater than all the prophets was in their midst, and they wanted to kill him. Finally, he pointed out their faulty interpretation of the law and the barriers that they put between God and man. These man-made barriers that were so intense that they would keep anybody from actual salvation. Jesus basically said, you lost the keys to the door of salvation and you won't go in, nor will anybody that follows you. Very much like any cult that's going on today that people adhere themselves to, thinking that that's what will open the doors of heaven for them. And not only do they not go in, nobody that listens to those cults will go in. After lunch, crowds had grown, so much so that that Luke says they were stepping on each other. There were so many there. And Jesus sits down with his disciples as the crowd is eavesdropping, and he begins to pour into his disciples, knowing that we are now entering this new phase of hostility towards Jesus and his followers. There already, there's always been hostility, even from the very beginning, but now it's just ratcheted up, and it's going, to, it's going to climax at the cross of the murder of Jesus. And Jesus knows what world they're going to grow up in, and he knows the world that they're going to minister in and they're gonna they're going to be killed, most of them would be killed for the faith. So he begins to warn them. And he begins with warning them the, the hypocrisy of the Pharisee. Not to be fooled by this hypocrisy, this this portraying something before men and really being something else inside. He warns them not to fear men, but to fear God. Knowing that men are going to be angry, and men are going to hate them, and men are going to bring them before the courts, and men are going to abuse them, and men are going to kill them. Jesus says still, don't be afraid of what men can do to you. Rather fear God. He went on to say, don't allow the fear of man to keep you from proclaiming Christ. Hey, we can relate to that, can't we? That fear of proclaiming Christ. What will somebody say? What will they think? What will they do? And then he says, when you're called before the courts, don't worry. Just trust the Holy Spirit. Don't fear the men. Trust the Spirit. At that point in the conversation as the crowd is listening to what Jesus is saying, someone from the crowd yells out a request to Jesus. He can't wait till Jesus is done. He's there's a lull in the conversation, apparently, so he wants to make his voice heard. And the interruption of this man that starts in verse 13 changes the direction that Jesus, the focus of Jesus at that moment. It responds to the man, and certainly not in the way that the man had hoped. And Jesus will address the greedy family member and follow it up with a parable of the rich fool. So we start with the greedy family. And the man's appeal in verse 13, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. The man's appeal is, help me get more. Jesus, I want you to help me get more. The man's not asking Jesus here to interpret the laws of inheritance. What he wanted was Jesus to simply tell his most likely older brother here to make the inheritance more equitable. Or even. But Jesus knows the man's heart, just as he knew the Pharisee's heart and the scribe's heart. And he turns the subject to greed. The love of money has always been a significant problem. Money itself's not the problem. Money is neither moral nor immoral. But it's the heart of people in connection to that money that makes it a problem and makes it an idol. So many people that we know, and maybe people in this room that worship money. And that becomes the end all of their life. That's their goal in life, is to make sure they have so much money. For many, like the Pharisees, money was a sign of God's blessing or what they claimed to be a sign of God's blessing. The Sadducees were in the same boat. The Sadducees didn't believe in a a life after death, so the Sadducees believed whatever you got in this life was God's stamp of approval on your life. So if you're wealthy, that meant you lived a good life, and if you're poor, that meant you lived a bad life. And the Pharisees were kind of in that same condition. If they could increase their wealth, that was God's stamp of approval on their life. I, we knew of a, a church in Palm Springs. It was the largest church in the valley. Several thousand people attended this church, but there were some significant issues that were going on under the surface. And a friend of mine who had asked, who had been an elder at that church, who was now attending my church, had written a letter to the pastor voicing his concerns. And I saw the, the response from the pastor. He, my friend showed me the letter and it was, how can you say that there's something wrong here. Look at how much money the church is bringing in. So for many, money is a sign. And they missed the warning. The warning of Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10, who said, "...he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income... This too is vanity. Solomon, who was the richest man in the world at the time, tried to satisfy his desires with money only to find out you can't do it. There's never enough money. It's reported that when Howard Hughes was the wealthiest man in the world, someone asked him, a reporter asked him, Mr. Hughes, do you have enough money yet? And He said, no. And the reporter asked him, how much more do you need? And he said, another dollar. Paul warned his young protege, Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmless desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Oh, how many times has this been lived out over and over since Paul wrote it. I can't tell you how many times I've witnessed it where somebody becomes a lover of money more than a lover of God and the things of God become secondary at best. Some even make the excuse, well, if I just make more money, I can give more to God. Paul could have cited a number of examples of this fact of the love of money plunging people into ruin and destruction. He could have gone back in the Old Testament, even to Joshua and pulled up the man named Achan. As the nation of Israel defeated the city of Jericho, everything in that city, the very first city they defeated when they came into the promised land, everything in there was under the ban. That is, God banned Israel from taking any of the spoil. All of that was for God. All of it was first fruits to God. But Achan saw gold, silver, an expensive fabric, and he had to have it. And he went and he grabbed it, and he dug a hole in the bottom of his tent, and he laid it in there and covered it back up. Now let's be fair with Achan for a moment. He had lived in the desert his whole life. He grew up in the wilderness. Eating manna every day. Getting water from a rock when he was thirsty. There was nothing. There was no income for him. He never had anything except the clothes that he had, that he inherited from his now dead parents. So he saw that wealth and it was more than he had ever seen in his life outside of the gold in the tabernacle. And he takes it. But in the end, it would cost him and his entire family their lives. The nation of Israel would go next to fight a little town called Ai, and it was a a nothing town, so Joshua didn't even send all the troops, just sent a handful because that's all they would need, and they got soundly defeated, the Israelites, that is. And Joshua came back and cried out to the Lord, why? And God says, because you all stole something that belongs to me. And through casting lots, it lands on Achan, and Achan admits that he he stole the gold and the silver and the cloth, and they take his whole family and they put him in a valley. And the rest of the nation of Israel stand up over the valley and throw stones on them until they're all dead. Paul could have warned Timothy about Balaam, prophet, supposedly a prophet of God from Numbers chapter twenty-two through twenty-four, and he's hired by a pagan nation who promises him a big fat payday if he will just curse Israel. And he tries. He tries on three occasions to curse the nation of Israel, but God won't allow him to do that. God will only allow a blessing to come out of his mouth. And Balaam's a little frustrated because he wants the payday. But he hitched himself to that pagan and all for money. And in the end, he would die for his greed. Paul could have... Look to more recent history in Judas Iscariot who was a lover of money and for 30 pieces of silver betrayed Jesus Christ as we read this morning. Jesus would go to the cross and die. Humanly speaking, because Judas's greed. Then there was... Ananias and Sapphira. Who were at the, after the birth of the church promised God that they would give so much money to God and when they showed up, when Ananias showed up first, he gave less than what he had agreed to. And Peter was there and Peter said, you're lying to God. You're not lying to men, you're lying to God. And he dropped down dead. Sometime later, his wife Sapphira made it to the church to ask the same question. Did you, did you make so much money? Were you going to give so much money? Oh, yeah, 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 that's the number. Peter said, you're lying to the Holy Spirit. And she died. Loving money is listed among the most heinous of sins. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, Paul writes, But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Holding a form of godliness though they have denied the power. Avoid such men as these. With all of those things, he throws in their greed. The man who called out to Jesus was most likely the younger brother because of inheritance laws that were in effect for the nation of Israel. According to Jewish law in Deuteronomy 21, the firstborn son received twice as much as any other son. So parents who are going to leave their land to their children, and they all did, they leaving their land to their children, they would divide it in one section more than they had male sons. So if they had three sons, they would divide it in four sections, and the oldest son would get two, and the other was going to get one. In in the case of two sons, the older brother would get two-thirds, and the younger brother would get a third. So either the older brother is not dividing the land yet, he's the executor of the state, hasn't given his brother the land yet, or more likely, based on Jesus' response, the younger brother thinks the split should be more even. It's not fair that he gets two-thirds and I only get a third. That's not fair. So Jesus, tell my brother to be more equitable. Either way, Jesus uses the opportunity to address to the heart. So the Lord's warning in verse 14 and following is guard against greed. Guard against greed, verse 14. But he said to him, man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter over you? Jesus has no intention on being drug into this domestic brouhaha. He's not going to get into the middle of this. He quickly shuts down the thought that he will say anything about the inheritance and how it should be divided. Jesus is not about to act at that moment as Judge judah He's not going to... Arbitrate between greedy D and greedy dumb. That's all. That's a job for the scribes. In fact, the people that Jesus had just accused at lunch, that's their job is to arbitrate between those things. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. He didn't come to arbitrate between inheritance outcomes the day is coming that both of those brothers would stand before jesus as judge but on that day he's going to be judging their hearts not their portfolios he's going to be judging whether or not they belong to him which is far more important than anything they could own on earth for that reason jesus addresses their heart his heart The ultimate issue is not equality. Even if the split was unequitable, even if it was unrighteous, that's not the point. The greater issue was the condition of the man's heart as was manifested by his greed. First half of verse 15 says, Then he said to them, Jesus now speaking to the whole crowd, Beware and be on your guard against every form of, of greed. The word greed is also translated, maybe in your Bible, as covetousness. It's defined as this, a strong desire to acquire more and more material possessions, or to possess more things than other people have, all irrespective of need. Greed is seen throughout the scripture as a distinguishing factor between the righteous and the unrighteous. The unrighteous being greedy and the righteous not being greedy. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 3. But immorality or impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. If you're a saint, no one should ever say of you, you're greedy. That should not be part of your personality. A couple of verses later in Ephesians 5 5, the scripture says... For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of, God, of Christ and of God. Paul makes it even bolder here. If you are greedy, if you are covetousness, you are an idolater and therefore you are not saved. Colossians chapter 3 verse 5. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. He said it again there. If greed is in your life, if greed is a part of your character, you are also an idolater. You are worshiping money. It has become your God. Jesus' command is to guard against us. Look out. Avoid. Every form of greed. And greed doesn't always just take on the form of, I want more money. It could take on the form of just wanting more things just to have more things. It could take on the form of wanting more because of what having more says to the world. If I have more, the world thinks I am successful. The world thinks I am, the world believes something about me. I impress the world. You know, we like watching those uh, house hunter type shows, right? They go into some city and they, and then it's in the Midwest and it comes with five acres and a pool and it costs $180,000. And the people are going, that's way too much. <laughs> and every once in a while, you'll see a couple who, when they're looking for the house, they say, I want a house that says, wow, when people walk in. I want people to be wowed when they see my house. That's part of the greed that Jesus is speaking of. I want to impress the world. Greed can take on the form of holding so tightly to what you have because of the fear that somebody might take it away. I have to hold on to everything and I have to guard it carefully and I can't let anybody use any of it or or lend it out because I have to hold on to it. Greed takes on the form of unwilling to be generous. You will probably never err by being too generous. You can be foolish and give all your money to some dumb thing. But by being generous with people, you'll probably never be an error. Greed takes on the form often of expecting something in return. Oh, I would give, I would give that to these people, but I'll never get anything back in return. No. I need something in return. Jesus would talk, give an illustration about that later. When you give a, uh, when you have a fancy dinner, don't invite all the rich people because you expect an invitation from them later. Invite all the poor people because they have no ability to throw a fancy dinner for you. So if you're really generous, you'll you'll provide a fancy dinner for the people who can't do anything for you. Not for the people who will pump you up later. Jesus tells us why to guard against greed. In the rest of verse 15, the Lord's reasoning is, life is not about possessions. Second half of verse 15 For, this is the purpose statement, here's why he said, guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. You're going to have a whole lot, but that's not your life. For the believer, that's not your life. For the unbeliever, that may be your life, but that's going to come to an end one day anyway. Jesus is saying, how, regardless of how much you have or how little you have, Your life is not made up of what you own. You can have a castle full of gold or a shack with an old blanket, and none of those things determine who you are. They certainly don't impress God or determine your standing before Him. Everybody in this room has an eternal soul that's going to live somewhere forever. One day you're going to leave this earth and everything you own is going to be left behind and you'll go to your eternal home. Either in heaven or in hell. And no amount of possessions, no matter how vast they are, can buy your way into heaven or bribe your way out of hell. The pharaohs were buried in these Fancy tombs and pyramids with all of this immense wealth with them so they could buy their way into the afterlife. And it didn't work. If your focus in this life is gathering possessions, you're going to miss heaven. Because you are you're more willing to sacrifice your eternity for the temporary pleasures on earth. And we are called to do the exact opposite as Christians. Building the sacrifice to temporary pleasures on earth for treasures in heaven. The life that God promises, this joy unspeakable, this peace that surpasses understanding, the hope of glory in the presence of God does not come from owning earthly possessions. Every material thing in this earth will one day burn up be worthless. We are to live with an eternal focus. To drive home his point, Jesus gives the parable of the rich fool. The rich fool. Verse 16 says, and he told them a parable saying, a land of a rich man was very productive and he began reasoning to himself, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? The man's dilemma is he had too much. I I got too much, I don't know what to do with it. I, I, I've got this, this great crop this year. So much so that I don't have enough room in my barns to store it all. He worked hard as farmers do. He, Plowed his field, he removed the rocks, he removed the weeds, he dug the furrows, he planted the seeds. He waited for God to bring the water and the sun and germinate the seeds. He didn't steal the land, he didn't embezzle the land, he didn't cheat somebody out of the land. He's not cheating labor and not paying them for their work. He's an honest, hard-working farmer. God graciously brought just the right amount of rain and just the right amount of sunshine and caused the seeds to germinate and produce an abundant crop. He has a bumper crop. He's a successful farmer. But now he's got an unexpected problem. What am I going to do with the excess? All this that I wasn't expecting, what am I going to do with it? His barns are packed to the rafters. There's no more room. So the man's answer? I'll build bigger barns. I'll store more. Verse 18, 19. Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many many goods laid up for many years. Come, take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Now, as a businessman, he does the wise thing. As a businessman, he says, I don't have enough room to expand, I don't have enough room to store all this stuff, so I'm going to build bigger barns. He had a couple of other options. He could have flooded the market, driven the price down, affected everybody, including himself. He could have left it in the field to rot and then just plowed it in the next year. But he says, I'm going to build barns. I'm going to build larger ones. He plans to store up as much as possible and take it easy. I'm going to say to my soul, soul, you've worked hard. You've invested well, you've saved well, you have many goods laid up that will take you through many years, the rest of your life. You can now retire. You can take it easy. You can sit back and relax. Sounds like the retirement that we all want. It sounds like the retirement that the man deserved for all of his hard work. We might expect him to be an example of what happens when you work, work really hard that's not what happens. We see next the man's surprise. His soul has been required. Verse 20. But God said to him, You fool. This very night your soul will be required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? Why does God call him a fool? I mean, he worked hard. God blessed the crop. It came in abundantly and he's just trying to make sure he does something with it. Why is he a fool? Well, he's a fool because everything he worked for was for himself. In this parable, you see the farmer use I six times and my five times. My crops, my barns, my grain, my goods, my soul. This man never considers God in the equation. In fact, he never even considers others in the equation. He could have taken the excess and given it to other people that were hungry. But more importantly, he forgot to include God. He forgot it was God who sent the rain. It was God who gave him the sun. It was God who caused the seeds to germinate. He forgot that God gave him the health and the wisdom to do the work. And he was planning the rest of his life without considering the place of God in it at all. What am I going to do with all this that I have? I know, I'll just build bigger barns so I can store it up for myself and I can take the rest of my life easy. He thought he was in control. He thought he could do what he liked. There was no need to think about God. He lived and planned his life as if there were no God. That's why he's a fool. Psalm 14, verse 1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The fool lives as if there is no God or that God is uninterested or God is incapable or God is inconsequential or God just doesn't exist. So I can live my life however I want and do whatever I want. Then I can eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. His focus was life on earth and no thought about what would happen to him after he died. This very night, your soul will be required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? In other words, you're dying tonight. What good are the barns filled with grain going to do you then? You can't use them to buy your way into heaven and you can't use them to bribe your way out of hell. They're all staying here on the planet. They're going to belong to somebody else. You can't barter after you're dead. A number of years ago, somebody created a bumper sticker that said, the one who dies with the most toys wins. Somebody else created a reply to that bumper sticker sometime later that said, the one who dies with the most toys still dies. That's true. The point of the parable is found in verse 21. We must be rich toward God. We must be rich toward God. Jesus says, so is the man who stores up treasures for himself and is not rich toward God. There is nothing wrong with being wealthy. God blessed... Specific men in the Bible with extreme wealth. Abraham was extremely wealthy. His sons would then be very wealthy. Jacob was extremely wealthy. David was wealthy. Solomon, the wealthiest man in the world at the time. Joseph of Arimathea was apparently a wealthy man. And there are others. There's nothing wrong with wealth. There's nothing wrong with saving. There's nothing wrong with planning your retirement. In fact, I did read a commentary this week that said the point of this parable is you should never retire. That was sad to me when I read that. I quickly dismissed that interpretation of the text. That's not what the the text is about. The text is about greed and about not considering God. God has used some very wealthy men in the world and in his service to do some very amazing things. I've heard the stories of the millionaires who have cut checks to missionaries that will cover the next two years of their support. Many of the missionaries that we support right now, that we support as a church, are on the field because there's a foundation where millionaires put money into in order to make it possible for missionaries to go to the field. J.C. Penney was apparently a believer And when the time that he died, it is said that he lived on 10% of his income and gave 90% away. And he died a very wealthy man. So wealth isn't the problem. The problem is investing in the temporal while ignoring the eternal. The problem is when you think your life consists only of what you see around you and what you can possess. That's the problem. The problem is not living with eternity in mind. The problem is not living when saying, what does God want me to do? What is God's plan for me? The problem is living as if God doesn't exist or He plays no part in the business aspect of your life. That you relegate God to a a couple of hours on a Sunday morning and maybe a midweek. We are to relegate every hour of our life to God. In everything, he used to have the preeminence. You know, the Bible even commends planning ahead. Solomon said, consider the ant. He stores up food for the wintertime. He plans. That's wise. But don't plan your life without God. Our first priority is God, not an afterthought. And so many Christians seem to want not to follow God, but God to follow them. God, here's what I'm doing. I hope you'll bless what I'm doing. God, here's all the plans that I've made. Come along and make them successful. Instead of starting with God, what is it that you want me to do? What would you have me do? James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. James says, Come now you who say, Today or tomorrow, we'll go into such and such a city. We'll spend a year there, engage in business, make a profit. Yeah, you don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will go and live and do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, for the one who knows to do right... The right thing to do and does not do it to him, it is sin. In other words, James is saying, Christian, don't make plans without asking God first. Similar to what Jesus prayed in the garden, is it not? Father, not my will, but your will be done. If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Do you find yourself making plans to the exclusion of God? Hoping that God will just bless those plans, whatever they are? Do you find yourself being more concerned with your earthly investments than your eternal investments? I wonder what would happen if all those who claim to be Christians put as much effort into investing in eternal treasure as they do investing in earthly treasure. To be clear, Jesus is not advocating a lack of planning or a lack of saving. He's not promoting foolishness. He's not promoting just live however you want to live and don't worry about the consequences. He's promoting an eternal focus. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. And we're to have a heart for the things of God. We're to be men and women, brothers and sisters in Christ, who have an eternal focus. And we're not controlled by things. We're controlled by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your grace and your mercy on us. That Father, you've taken people like us and made us your children. People who don't deserve it. People who are often greedy. Lovers of things. Lovers of pleasure. Lovers of money. Father, let us be lovers of you. Help us. Help us to love you more than anything else. Help us, Father, to put you at the forefront of every decision of our life. Father, help us to honor you with all that you've blessed us with, knowing that it's by your good hand. Father, let us be a generous people. A people who are known for doing good, pointing to Jesus Christ. Father, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you as Lord, I pray that your grace and your mercy will flood over them and open up their eyes to the truth that they need Christ. Father, if there are Christians here who have recognized that greed is controlling their life, would You give them the heart of repentance to turn from that and turn to You? Father, may we all honor You with what You've blessed us with. You deserve all honor and glory. And You demand the first place in our life. Father, we commit this to You and ask for Your goodness.